0: All right, we're looking forward to getting into God's Word today uh, to say it fills really early this morning uh, Daylight savings. Uh, I hear is going to go away one of these days Maybe even this year. This might be the last time We have this really early service like this I will say there's a part of me that loves it part of me that hates it. Uh, I'm not a morning person uh, so it's a little harder to get ready and Ready to go, but I do like observing you in worship and seeing who the morning people are among us. From the very first hallelujah, some of you were ready. Ready to sing, others were like holding your head. hallelujah, I know, I know, I shouldn't be doing this, drinking your coffee uh, or whatever. Uh, and so uh, it is uh, enjoyable to be able to get into Romans with you and to study God's word this morning. We're going to be looking at one paragraph, Romans 2, 12 through 16. And again, I do have a handout that would be helpful for you. If you want to grab it, you can. I won't be offended if you get up and get it. It should be in the Welcome Center area. Um, they're in your bulletin uh, as well. So if you grab a bulletin or one of those handouts, you should be able to uh, find your way, feel your way to Romans uh, chapter uh, 2, verses 12 through 16 this morning. And that handout designed to help you. In Romans chapter 2 in the first part of chapter 3, Paul uncovers the ungodliness of the Jewish people who are under God's wrath. And the whole section, he'll deal with both Jew and Gentile and conclude that all people are under God's wrath. All people have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. But in this section, Romans 2 especially, uh, he's dealing with the Jew, the Jewish person. He starts generally in verse 1 with, uh, O man, if you see Romans 2 in verse one, 1, O man uh, who sits in judgment while committing the same deeds, you are without excuse. But then he makes it quite clear down in chapter 2, verse 17, that he's dealing with the Jewish person throughout this section. He says, you call yourself a Jew. You call yourself a Jew. Here, what happens in this passage is Paul creates an imaginary sparring partner. Uh, but this person represents the sort of person that Paul's been working with. Uh, first, in every city for over 20 years, he's dealing with a normal Jewish man or woman in the passage. And what Paul's doing is, uh, in my uh, estimation, is he is deflating the sources of Jewish pride and presumption. Pricking the balloon of their pride in the law, possession of the law, Romans 2, 1 through 16. That's the first half of the chapter. And then in their circumcision, the sign of circumcision, Romans two seventeen through 19. Last week I used an illustration of a child with a balloon. I'll modify it just a little bit to remind us and then to move us forward. It's like a child who has two balloons who takes them everywhere and believes that these balloons make him better than everyone else. On one balloon for the Jew is written law possession. On the other is written the sign of circumcision. And so what Paul does in chapter 2 is he pops the balloons of law possession in this section and in circumcision in the next. And clearly, Paul has, and he's predominantly considering uh, the Jewish people here. And he goes after their possession of the law, which they feel exempts them from judgment. I want you to, I'd ask you to close your eyes and imagine this, but I'm afraid you'd never wake up again. Uh, But just imagine with your eyes wide open, uh, a Jewish person who... Uh, with a Torah scroll in his hand, pointing at the sins of a Gentile person, all while under the supervision of God. So you've got God watching over, you've got a Jew with the Torah in his hand, pointing at the sins of the Gentiles. This Jewish man with this book in his hand thinks that the book will keep him from judgment. So in this passage, Paul says, wait a second, God's going to judge you too. God will judge, chapter 2, 1 through 5, hypocritical judges. God will judge impartially, verses 6 through 11. And then he adds one more statement to this Torah-holding Jewish person. In verses 12 through 16, he makes this point. God holds all all people, both Jew and Gentile, accountable to his law. His law. And it's at this point that we begin to see that his main focus is their pride in law possession. If you're looking at chapter 2 verses 12 through 16, I won't read it all right now. We're going to read as we go along. But uh, we come across the word namas, or law, for the very first time in Romans. And it, we not only come across the word law, it's mentioned repeatedly. Two different forms, but it's mentioned 11 times in this one paragraph. So let me just show you. Look at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Those who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. It's not the heroes of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law, and we'll stop there. Eleven times in my Bible, I've highlighted the word law to remind me that Paul's going after their presumption, presuming upon law possession as a false security. Now, the way Paul does this is he deflates their pride in two ways. And so if you got your notes, uh, we're going to go to number one now on the handout. First, Paul declares God's judgment on all people. Okay, so he's going to pop the law balloon today. Uh, he says God will judge every person or all people in verse 12. That's what verse 12 is about. We're going to look at it briefly here where Paul divides all humanity into two categories. Those who are without the law and those who are under the law. And he starts with those without the law. Look at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. So in verse 12... Beginning here, Paul deals more thoroughly with the point he's just made about God judging impartially every person in verses 6 through 11. Okay, so this verse shows how God shows no partiality. God will judge all humanity, whether they have the law of Moses in writing or not. That's the new contribution he's going to make here. Now, in demonstrating this, he starts with the Gentile people, which would be every person outside of the Jewish people, and he describes them as being those who sin without the law. So he's considering people who did not grow up under, or perhaps were even aware of, the law that God gave through Moses. Okay, And uh, he has two things really going on in the first part of verse 12. They're represented with the two verbs. Okay, These people who don't have the law, first they sinned. They fell short or missed the mark. This is the first time Paul uses the verb for sin in Romans as well. Here uh, uh, he introduces them sinning uh, throughout the book. He'll, he'll ma- basically make the point uh, of universal human sinfulness. All fall short of the glory of God. All sin. But at its at its core, the word sin here speaks of an offense against God that ruptures the relationship entirely and demands condemnation and judgment. And so the the first point he makes, and this is pretty easy on an early morning, is those without the law of Moses sin, ruptured their relationship, which demands condemnation and judgment. Then he says they will perish, verse 12, they will perish. This word means they will be lost. They will suffer the results of a negative final verdict from God. Now there are a few times the word perish is used in the Old Testament scripture, and is translated in the standard Greek translation in a way that I think is helpful. Uh, you could write down these two references: Psalm 9:5 and Psalm 37:20. I'm going to read them to you. We won't turn there because I'm just going to make a very brief observation from them. But you can look them up sometimes. Psalm 9.5 says, You have rebuked the nations, you have made the wicked perish. This is your word for perish. But then listen, you have blotted out their names forever and ever. What does perish mean? Their names are blotted out forever and ever. And then Psalm 37 verse 20 The wicked will perish, that's our word, they will perish, and then he says, they vanish, like the smoke, they vanish away. Now the word perish does not mean that Gentiles who sinned without the law will be annihilated or cease to exist. Instead, they will suffer eternally under the full weight of God's wrath in hell. That's what I believe the New Testament would teach, what the scriptures teach. This condemnation for Gentiles, however, comes not to them on the basis of hearing the Mosaic law. They don't have that privilege, so God won't judge them on that basis. Nevertheless, they will be judged for their sin. That's how he starts. Those without the law will perish. Uh, He then moves to Jewish judgment in verse 12b. So look in the middle of verse 12 And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Here, Paul's simple argument about Jewish condemnation involves two things happening as well. Two verbs. The ones under the law sinned. That's the first thing. They sinned as well. Despite the advantage of being in the law or within the sphere or influence of the Mosaic law They sinned, so what happens to them? You're just reading in verse 12, the end of the verse. They will be judged by the law. God will hold them accountable to the revelation that he has given to them. And and so the law of Moses holds them accountable as a legal standard for their behavior. They should know what to do because the law of Moses revealed it. And if their behavior is short of that, they will be condemned. This is pretty easy so far. This is Jewish judgment. Paul considers the fate of the Jews who boast in their status as possessors of the law. And he begins simply here. Everyone who sins will be judged by God. But then in verses 13 through 16, Paul establishes two ideas that will totally undermine Jewish confidence in law of possession. Okay, so again, if you're taking notes and so moving down to number two, Paul establishes two ideas, verses thirteen through sixteen, that will totally undermine their confidence in law of possession. Another way of saying this is Paul deflates their confidence in law possession with two jabs. Okay, two jabs here. First, he argues in verse 13 that justification requires obedience to the law, not hearing it. Okay, look at verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers who will be justified. So, in my opinion, in verse 13, he's continuing to deal, deal with the Jewish person. He's developing his ideas further regarding them, and their, you know, they're boasting in having or hearing the law. Okay, and it just makes it quite clear. They did have the advantage of being the hearers of the law of Moses for ages and generations. I mean, they're significant old testament passages where we see the israelite people sitting underneath receiving the instruction from the law and uh this morning just to make sure you're all awake i'd like to look at three of them so go back in your bible to deuteronomy deuteronomy and we're going to look at three significant ones when i was thinking you know when did they hear the law when did they hear the law? These three texts came to my mind immediately. I've been working through, uh, trying to summarize every book of the Old Testament. I've been working through uh, the Pentateuch, and now I'm in the historical books. Going, and so I, some of these passages are just fresh in my mind. Go to Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy 31. What happens in this passage is Moses finishes writing the Torah. And then when he finishes writing the Torah, he has it publicly read for all the people and then pronounces that they will need to read this Torah every seven years at a certain time in the calendar. Imagine how cool it would be if we could travel back in time to hear Moses write, you know, or someone writing for him the final words of the Torah. This is okay. Everyone gather together. We're going to read Genesis through Deuteronomy out loud. Okay. Verse 9, Deuteronomy 30, 1, nine. Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God, at the place that he will choose, you shall read This law before all Israel in their what? Hearing. They boast about hearing the law. Assemble the people, men and women and little ones, and the sojourners within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to... Now, this part they didn't get. Do all the words of this law and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess it. So here I have testimony that as soon as the Torah is completed, Moses has them read it, and he says, okay, every seven years at the Feast of Booths, you're going to read this. Everyone needs to hear this together. And for uh, hundreds of years, thousands of years, they hear the law over and over and over again. It's the people of Israel. Turn to 2 Kings 23 said that there are three of these we'll look at, 2 Kings 23 and verses 1 through 3. And I'm not going to make a lot of comments about them. I'm just going to remind you of these things, and then we're going to move along. 2 Kings 23 verses 1 through 3. This is like a, a you know, a sword drill. Right. Oh man, 2 Kings, where's that? All right, finding it, leafing through. Okay. That's the clean pages in your Bible. All right. The ones stuck together, Second Kings twenty three. Ready? Have I wasted enough time? Okay. Here, uh, King Josiah issues reforms centered around the Law of Moses. They find the Law. I think it, when it says Book of the Covenant, I think it's the Law in the um in. You know, we'll, we'll read about it. Uh, Second Kings twenty three one. Then the king this Josiah sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. Here, King Josiah is going to be a better king. He's going to call them to religious reforms and it starts with them all, with him reading the law in the presence of all the people. Now, when I think of the Old Testament and having the law read for the people, there's another passage that comes to mind, the third one, and I don't know if any of you think of this one. Can you think of a time when some men stood at the, the front of the people of Israel and read in the law when the people bowed their heads, lifted up their hands, and heard the word. Can you think of that? Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter eight. Turn there. Thank you. Nehemiah eight, verses one through eight. Here Ezra will lead in the, the priest and uh, scribe will lead in a reading of the law. Uh, today it seems that everyone is interested in revival. Uh, Because of uh, some things that have happened in different places like Asbury. Maybe I'll say something about that at some point in the future. But could you imagine this day? Significant work of God. People of Israel are gathered after the exile and they've come back. They've rebuilt the walls, rebuilt the city, rebuilt the altar foundation. And Ezra leads in this reading of scripture. Reading of the Torah. Verse 1, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Verse 2, so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women, all and, and those who could understand... And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for this purpose. And beside him stood a bunch of men. Okay. Look at verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. He's joined by those men again, verse eight, they read from the book, uh, from, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense, so that the people understood the reading in response to the public reading and hearing of the law, they weep and lament and repent, which might be marks of a true work of God. Now, even after these significant hearings of the law, and and in between them, the people of, of Israel enjoyed the hearing of the law, read to them in the temple and later on in synagogues all around the world. And so Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath, they heard the Torah of God. Go back to Romans now, and uh, we'll remind you of the point that Paul's making with this. Hearing the law of Moses was a good thing, yet hearing was not enough. They must be the doers of the law. That's the point that Paul's making. Only doers will be justified before an impartial judge. The point he's making here is that mere possession of the law won't exempt you. You must obey it. Use a modern illustration. They had failed to read the terms of their covenant agreement closely. Perhaps you felt qualified for a refund or a rebate for something, but then someone explains to you your children have to be 17 and under. Which, for us this year, we're celebrating some birthdays. It's just so sad. (laughs) (laughs) Two girls turning 18. Can you imagine? So I thought it was 18. No, it says here, seventeen. They don't qualify. For Jews, the terms that they fail to consider is you must perfectly obey it. And they're like, oh man, this is not as good of a balloon as I thought it was. I thought this was like a get out of jail free card. But you're saying you gotta do it? That's the first way that Paul Deflates their pride. Now, if the law balloon isn't completely deflated, Paul takes things further in verses 14 through 16 when he returns to consideration of the judgment of Gentiles. So, verses 14 through 16, 13 I think was primarily for the Jews, 14 through 16 is for Gentiles. I, I do think there's like a type of chiasm going on here, if you know what that is. Like, he starts with Gentiles, beginning in verse 12, goes to Jews. Middle verse 12, Jews verse 13, and then back to Gentiles 14 through 16. And he's going to make another argument here that I'm not, I'm not going to give you fully till the end. Now, if you can figure out that blank, right, verses 14 through 18, you can fill it in. You might be wrong. I'll tell you at the very end. Okay. But he's going to make two arguments to deflate their pride. We're gonna read verses 14 through 16, uh, and then we're gonna ask two questions. We're gonna answer two questions. First, what does Paul mean here? And then why is he saying this? Which is what we do when we study the Bible. We ask, what does it mean? Why is it here? Okay, so verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now, did you see why I decided to do a whole sermon on this one paragraph? (laughs) There's a lot of stuff there, right? What does this mean? That's the first question we try to answer. What does Paul mean here? And I think it's a harder question to answer than we realize. Verses 14 through 16 are more challenging than they at first appear. And so what I've done is I've summarized Paul's argument with three statements. If you get these three statements... I think you'll walk away knowing what this means. So, again, if you have notes, uh, there's three statements here under what does Paul mean. First, statement one. Although Gentiles do not have the law, Law of Moses, they sometimes obey it. Verse 14a. Now, scholars struggle here with what Paul says about Gentiles obeying the law. They wonder how this could be true, with some scholars suggesting that Paul must have in mind only Gentile believers in Jesus Christ. Okay, that's why they say, you know, well, how could he talk about them obeying the law? It must be a believer, because only believers can do this. But, uh, however, um, I think he's talking about all Gentiles, especially Gentile unbelievers, but all Gentiles. Here Paul leaves indefinite the number of Gentiles who actually do this. He doesn't say all of them are doing this necessarily. And he does not suggest that Gentiles perfectly or always obey the law. Instead, what I think he's doing here in verse 14 and and beyond, he's showing that Gentiles occasionally abide by the law. That is, sometimes Gentiles obey God's law. And where I see this in verse 14a is uh, when it says, in the very few first words, for when Gentiles. And that word when could be translated whenever. Okay, which implies there's sometimes Gentiles do this and sometimes they don't. And actually I think Paul's point would be normally they're not doing this. But whenever they do. Okay, so the point he's making here is although Gentiles do not have the law, they sometimes obey it. This is why unbelievers sometimes feel the need to obey parents and are outraged at things like stealing, murder, lying, abusing children. They're not always as bad as they could be. And I think the point that God is making initially, and what we're going to add to this, is even unbelievers sometimes obey God's law. Okay. Now, we add to that statement number two. Statement number two. Their partial obedience to the law condemns their disobedience. Okay, this is my second statement. We we see this when Paul says that Gentiles become a law unto themselves. Not having the law proper, their own behavior uh, and the good that they do occasionally reflects God's moral law. In other words, their own partial obedience to the law demonstrates what the standard is. It is obedience to God's law. Okay, they like occasionally get it right that testifies to the fact that there is something right. God's law. And that brings us to statement number three. And this is uh, perhaps a very important point. And this is how I, I would see verses 15 and 16 going. The third statement you've got to understand if you're going to walk away from this text and know what Paul means is this. They sometimes obey the law because God has written it on their hearts. This is a, a kind of a final explanation from him. Their occasional obedience to the law that they do not have shows that God has written the work of the law on their hearts. So although Gentiles don't have the law in their hand, like a Torah-toting Jewish person would have, they have the required works or deeds of the law on their hearts. So it's not in their hands. It's on their hearts. But in what sense is the work of the law written on their hearts? And I think the answer is not literally. God doesn't inscribe it on their physical heart, but metaphorically. One man says it this way I thought it was really good. God has put into the hearts of all people a basic moral sense of right and wrong. God has put within the hearts of all people a basic moral sense of right and wrong. To say that another way, God put his moral standard within Gentiles, all Gentiles. But the gifts don't stop there. God has not only inscribed the requirements of the law, what the law was really shooting after, on the heart of a Gentile, he's also given them a reflective mechanism. That sounds right. A conscience. A reflective mechanism to measure if they've obeyed the law written on their hearts. The reflective mechanism is the conscience. Well, what's the conscience? The conscience is a gift from God that he places within every person. I liked how one person described, he said, it's an inward monitor that measures whether we've conformed to or violated God's laws. It's an internal monitor, inward monitor, that measures whether we're obeying the law in our hearts. And this inward monitor, the text says, bears witness to us now. Okay, how? Through your thoughts that are either accusing you or excusing your actions and behavior. And, I mean, this is a complicated text. I'm just kind of summarizing. Well, we could spend like... Sermons here And Later our conscience Will bear witness To God To Jesus At the final judgment Regarding the integrity Or lack thereof Of our actions So that on the final day Of judgment when Jesus Judges even The secrets of Men and women will be known because the conscience will bear testimony. It's like the conscience gets up on the witness stand and he gives it all up. He gives it all up. You see, there, there'll be no possibility of a miscarriage of justice at the final judgment for Gentiles because their secrets and thoughts And consciences will declare whether they've attained to the required works or deeds of the law that God wrote on their heart. So I want to make an application here before we finish our last question. Do you have confidence in your own standing before God and others? I mean, do you realize that if we are left to ourselves... That our consciences will give up everything hidden about us. All the accusing thoughts of our heads that condemn us. Our conscience, if left to ourselves, would go to the witness stand and give up everything all about our hidden lusts, our hidden covetousness, hidden hatred, greed, or anger. One of the ways I think this should affect us is that we leave here not walking around with our chests puffed up in our own righteousness. We can't leave in this way. I mean, how can I stand up here week after week and preach? How can any one of us help Someone else. Uh, my wife reminded me something I knew of Spurgeon this week. Spurgeon, uh, when he would walk up the steps of uh, the Metropolitan Tabernacle to the pulpit, like way up there, you know, on every step, uh, Spurgeon would say, "I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe." And the Holy Spirit. God was changing him. God would empower the word preached through such a sinful man. It's only because of God's work in us to make us righteous that we can help anyone with the word. It's not in us. It is God through us. Okay. So this is what the text means. With this understanding of verses 14 through 16 in mind, that even Gentiles have a form of the law written on their hearts, we must now ask our final question. The last question is, why? Why does Paul argue this way? And that's when we remember that he tells us who he's actually writing about in the greater passage. He's addressing the average Jewish person of the day who believes... That he has something special that exempts him from judgment. As I said before, I get out of jail free card. For them, it was possession of the law of Moses. And Paul tells him something like this. Guess what? You're not the only one with the law. Everyone has it. It's like when, uh, for those of you who are older... The first time you received in the mail the notice from the publisher's clearinghouse. Remember when they sent these things around? You have won, and you may be a millionaire. Back when being a millionaire meant something, no, I'm just kidding. You may be a millionaire. And you're like, what? Perhaps no one had warned you about these things before. If you're young, okay. Hopefully you picked up enough of the conversation to know what's going on. You get in the mail this thing. And you're all excited and you think, oh, yes. But then someone comes to you and says, everyone has those. Everyone has those. That's the second idea that Paul makes to the Jewish person. Everyone has the law. Either in their hand or it's written on their heart. That won't exempt you from judgment. And with this final argument, I think we can hear the pop of their special source of pride. As we close, do you think that anything exempts you from God's judgment? Perhaps you can answer that question in your Uh, adult Bible study today, or your community group, do you think that anything exempts you from God's judgment? Maybe you boast in your family history or heritage. We all read the Bible. We all try to do what's right. Got a good family name. And you think that that would be enough to exempt you. Maybe you boast in your own goodness. Or works. Well, I'm not like, I'm just, you know, I've convinced my conscience to be telling me that I'm better than other people. I don't do all the bad things they do. Maybe you take confidence in your baptism. What we need to learn is that all who have sinned, will be judged. And it is only those who are in Christ Jesus who will not be condemned. Are you in Christ Jesus, boasting in Him alone? Or are you puffed up in your own righteousness? Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to walk through Romans two twelve through 16. So much about the law, the law, the law, the law. We've been looking over the shoulder at a Jewish person who boasted in the law, who felt that he was exempt because he had it in his hand. Lord, may we learn from his pride. May we learn that none of us are exempted. May everyone under the sound of my voice know that all people will stand before the judgment bar of God. And might we run to Jesus his righteousness, not our own, to find release from our sin and condemnation and wrath. Lord, may we not be arrogant today. Help none of us, no one here, to judge other believers. May we rejoice, though, in your righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.